Today we're going to talk about an interview with Eric Metaxas. I think that's how you say his last name. McTexas, McTaxas, Eric McTaxas, and Peter Thiel. I'll put the full interview in the show notes. I highly recommend it, and you'll see why after we go through it and talk about a few things they brought up. We're going to talk about the education system, science, just general business and entrepreneurship and innovation. It's a really great interview. It's a really great assessment on where we are at as a society. And I'm just going to add some commentary that I think is much needed of a Christian perspective because they they hint around it. They talk about it a little bit, but they just they didn't really drive it home. And that was the one disappointing thing about it. But they analyzed the situation perfectly. Just the remedy needs to be bolder than what they are proposing. So we're going to talk about that today. I hope I get through it all again. You know me and my clips. I don't always get through it, but let, let's just get through the beginning and then we'll get right into it. We are part of the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Go over to flfnetwork.com, put an HGBT in the memo field, and you'll get this 15-ounce mug, which I just heard from some listener, a uh, subscriber to the Fight Laugh Feast Network, who has one of those mugs, that his parents put their mug into a hot oven. Uh, you got, you're going to have to translate that for us in America. I don't know what a hot oven is. When I think of hot ovens, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into a hot oven. Um, so I don't know what you mean by that, but I uh, put you a sweet deal out there for you on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network Facebook page. If you uh, check that, you'll get a response. Um, and so I will give you a mug if you get somebody to sign up for the FLF Network as well. I'll give them a mug and I'll give you a mug because it got put in the hot oven. We are part, oh, I already said we're part of that. You can email me, Matt, howtobuildatent.com. Find me on all the social media sites, How to Build a Tent. Appreciate it. Subscribe, follow, a like if you're on YouTube or if you're listening on the social media sites. If not, go over there and just do it anyways. That'd be a really great help for me. Okay, so this is Peter Thiel. I just want to give you a little overview of who he is. He's an entrepreneur, venture capitalist. He's co-founder of PayPal. So kind of a big deal. He was the CEO until they sold the company. I believe they sold it. What was it? They sold it for like $1.5 billion to eBay. I, I don't remember the exact anyways, exact number. But he is worth, according to Wikipedia, $2.5 billion. So he has a couple bucks. You know, if you ever see him on the street and you ask him for some money and he says he doesn't have any, he's lying to you. He just doesn't want to give it to you. Which, you know, I, you know how you do that with the beggars. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. And then the interviewer who you'll hear somewhat throughout the clips is Eric Metaxas, e Eric M E T A X A S. He's an author, speaker, radio host. He's written the Amazing Grace biography by William Wilberforce, and I think I think they're both Christians from the sound of it. I honestly don't know. I maybe should have like done some more research on that. But it doesn't really matter to the point of what we're going to be talking about today. So. We're going to go through, I have a bunch of clips. There's really great points that I really want you to be encouraged by. I want you to be emboldened by because there are things that are happening that are counter into or counter the narrative. They are counter narrative, if that's the word to use. I don't know. But uh, they go against the narrative of what we're being told. And it's what we should be thinking, what I should just be assuming that I haven't been if the Christian narrative is true, then all this stuff must be true that they're saying. And it's just encouraging because they're saying it. So let's get into it right now. 
outlined this is two basic deal. ways that we have progress as a society, and one is um, what I describe as horizontal or extensive growth, which involves copying things that work. And this is uh, um, most um, evidently seen through globalization um, in the last 40, 50 years. And then um, the other one is sort of intensive or vertical progress, doing new things. And uh, this is sort of iconically seen in technology or new inventions or, or things like that. And I think these are two sort of um, modalities of progress that I, I contrast. And uh, I think for those of us living in the United States, Western Europe, in the advanced countries, um, my claim is that the, uh, the second is much more important than the first. Uh, globalization uh, is perhaps good if you're in Burkina Faso or um, you know, in China or places where you have a lot of catching up to do. It, uh, it's not how we're going to improve uh, living standards in, um, in, in the West. This is really fascinating. There's two ways of growing. It's modular, mod, modular, modular, or whatever. Anyway, there's two ways. You can grow up, which is innovating, coming up with new ways of doing things. And then there's the horizontal way of do, or growing, where you are, this is the globalization, where you're outsourcing, where you're spreading out and your growth to other countries, where other countries benefit. Now, I would only disagree with this in the slightest, with all due respect to the billionaire, that growing horizontally, I think, is what happens with efficiencies, with scaling. When you're doing outsourcing, you're getting things at a cheaper product. We are able to produce products at a cheaper price, which means we can buy more. Our dollar goes a longer way. So I believe that is one way that increases wealth. But I agree with him that we also need the vertical growth as well of innovation coming up with new technologies, new inventions, new discoveries. And he really just nails this point. And I think he's so right on of how we really haven't had any substantial vertical growth in the last 50 years, he says. And he doesn't even really say what is significant about it. Like it kind of does. But it's just really interesting that 50 years ago is 1970. Now think about all of the things that were happening at the end of the 60s, the 70s. And he mentions one we'll get into in a little bit. But I just want you to be thinking about that. Innovation, our vertical growth, bringing out new things, creating new things, discovering new things kind of just stopped. I mean, it's not like it hasn't happened at all. But the rates that we saw this vertical growth has kind of diminished and stopped since uh, 50 years ago. And it's all been this horizontal growth. Very interesting. We'll get into that a little more in a second. I just want you to be thinking about it in the back of your mind. If you, when you describe the world as the developed and developing world, that is a globalization narrative. The, developed, the developing countries are the ones that are going to become developed by copying and converging. And then it's also an anti-tech narrative because the developed world is a place where nothing new is going to happen. It's developed, it's done, it's finished. And this is very different from the way we would have described the world 50 years ago when we would have described it in terms of the first world and the third world. And the third world was permanently screwed up and the first world was the one that was technologically advancing. Another great point. And besides the point he's making, just I want to remind us the importance of controlling the narrative and controlling the language and everything we do, even when we're speaking to ourselves, how we talk to ourselves, how we are positive or negative, what words we use to describe our situation, if we're thankful or are we bitter, are we remorseful, all of these things, narratives and language and how we say things matters. And here he's making the point 
that we no longer talk first world, third world. That is, there's the third world that progress isn't happening in. And then there's the first world where all the innovations happening, the discoveries are happening. We have this vision of ourselves. We have this vision of the future. And he talks about this a lot. I don't think we're going to get into this. I cut it out just for time's sake. It's an hour long thing and our show's not an hour long. And I want to put some commentary in it. But that idea that we need to have clarity about this vision of the future to go after. And we've kind of lost that. And he talks about it in Europe. He's talking about it in the United States. And he's saying here that when we had the first world, third world, our vision of the future was we were always going to get better. We were always improving. We had a Western society that was allowing us to grow and to come up with new ways of doing things to develop. And we've lost that. And you can see it even in our language where we talk about developed world and the undeveloped world. And that is the developed world has this idea, this language attached to it that it's over. There's nothing left. It's done. And now it's for the undeveloped worlds to catch up to us. And then we can be at this stage of finality. It's very sad to think about. And it kind of totally, not kind of, it totally makes sense. Sorry, that was a little loud. It totally makes sense that you see where we are in a culture and our expectations and where we see ourselves. It's, it's sad. My, in my, my underlying thesis is that uh, we've had relatively little progress in technology broadly defined um, in, the, in the West in the last 50 years. There's perhaps been you know, a narrow zone of progress around uh, the world of bits, computers, internet, mobile internet. You know, most engineering fields were bad fields for people to go in in the Western world in the last 40 or 50 years. If you, if you, you didn't want to become a mechanical engineer, chemical engineer, um, electrical engineering was already on its way out when I was at Stanford in the late 80s. Um, and certainly, if you were so stupid as to become an aeroastro engineer or nuclear engineer, um, that, that was a bad idea. Uh, a full stop for the last 40, 50 years. And, uh, and I, I, think, um, I, I do think that uh, a lot of the challenges and problems we have in our society is that we are, you know, we are no longer pro- progressing as, as fast as uh, we're often told. So his thesis is that the progress that we are making beyond what is in the tech world is not fast at all and that we're actually have kind of become stagnant. And it's really sad. He talks about how these careers where we should be having advancements, we should be developing, there should be opportunities. There aren't any. You couldn't become a nuclear, I don't know what the engineer, because we're not building nuclear power plants. The cleanest source of energy, the most productive by like, you know, space that it takes up and all the resources it uses. It's by far the most energy producing technology we have. We haven't used it. Space. We just stopped trying to go to Mars. We, after the moon, we stopped. And there's this cultural shift that he's getting at that has caused us to be stagnant in innovation, in our sciences, in our, you know, all of our education and the different um, areas of study that we were trying to push people into. It just, it's not, it's drying up. And he correlates that to culture. And I want to just highlight that because we talk about it here and I don't know where else we hear it from. That you can't separate our overall beliefs about life, our religion. You can't separate that from our culture. You can't separate that from business. You can't separate that from prosperity and our lives improving. Again, going back to the first world, third world discussion. They're all intertwined. You can't have one without the other. 
And if you want to be successful in business, you can't neglect those other things. You can't check out of those other areas. You have to be engaged. You have to be a well-rounded man or woman because it all impacts. It all impacts our like everything that's going on. We pretty much have lost a generation, according to Peter, of not growing. 50 years. That's a generation of work. But the question of the progress of science, how fast it is progressing, is it accelerating? Is it decelerating? Is it relatively stagnant? Um, never gets asked. And if it gets asked, um, we get nothing but short propagandistic answers from, let's say, university presidents who will tell us using adverbs uh, and as a substitute for thought that clearly and demonstrably <laughs> science is progressing faster than ever before. The things that we've progressed in are the distractions from seeing what's not been improved upon. Our tunnels that are 100 years old, our houses, our cars, changed a little bit from the 70s. But since then, and you just start thinking about this stuff. Isn't that kind of interesting to think about? That the progress that we've made are things that aren't really increasing our quality of life. Now, I guess you could argue and debate about all those different things and the utility of them. But think about it. Like, when was, when was the last Sears Tower made? I mean, how long did it take to build the One World Trade Center? That thing took forever. It's kind of surreal to think about as you step back and like, wow, we really aren't accelerating as like we think. We think about our the microchips and technology and information doubling and all that stuff. But what are we doing with it? What are we producing? And I cut this clip out, but they were also talking about cancer and how I think Nixon, they were saying Nixon was the one who said that they will end, uh, they will find a cure for cancer by the bicentennial, 1976. And then at 50 years later, it's still 50 years out or 100 years. It's like farther and farther out. Um, it's just, it's really eye-opening when you think about it and you step back. And again, it goes back to this cultural shift the last 50 years and what has been going on. And we're going to get into that a little bit more with some other clips and other, again, remember, we're talking about sciences. We're talking about university and all that good stuff. We're going to get into that. But first, we've got to tell you about Kingsman Grooming Products. Go to kingsmangroomingpros.com. Go support a Christian company, get high quality products that you're already using so you get better quality products and then you'll get a discount, 10% off when you use HTBT in the checkout. So you get to support a Christian company, you get new beard, high quality beard products, hair products, all the things that you can put on your face, leather products if you're looking for a bag for traveling or whatever. You already use this stuff, get high quality products, get a discount, 10% off and support a Christian company, put in HTBT when you get it. Go to the checkout. 10% off kingsmangroomingpros.com in the show or the link is in the show notes. All right, let's get back to it. But you're not suggesting, I don't think, that they don't want to cure cancer. In other words, I would assume that anybody uh, working in a lab, any place, it, it would be their dream uh, to, to get on the map to have done that. So what, what do you think is the, is the issue? You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really sure what, what, what I would say they want to do. I, th I think they, uh, they want to get money from the government to do uh, to get to keep um, keep whatever research they're so doing. So is this going. like welfare? They're disincentivized because they're happy. It's certainly it's certainly questions about this do not get asked. Science, he goes after science and says like, it's not progressing. And he talks about it in a fantastic way. Of there's this groupthink that has happened, and he goes back and he talks about how. Uh, back when they had to develop the atomic bomb, they infused it with so much government money and the New Deal 
and all of this infused government resources that gave it a boost. And they came out with this great stuff. And he says it was like a one-time hit where you were able to accelerate science and develop the bomb really quickly, but at the cost of destroying science, where it creates this groupthink mentality. And you go and you'll talk to the universities because that's where all the science fund goes. And they'll tell you in a bunch of words of how great and things are, but it's not quantifiable. It's science. They're faking it is basically his point in all of this, which is funny because isn't it the that community that is the most angry and the most defensive and that you can't have any contradictory thought. You can't have anyone who goes against the narrative and they shut out anyone without any, you know, any thought, any debate. If you don't agree with them, if you're not lockstep, a majority of scientists agree, or you're going to get laughed off of the stage, you're going to be defunded, you're going to be ignored. Isn't it funny that this is the place where they are the weakest? That that just seems right to me. When a industry, when a group of people, when an organization are the most defensive, when they're the most loud, when they're the most aggressive, it's usually because they have the most to hide. So is it like welfare? where they're just happy taking in the money. And he said, Peter says, it's definitely questions not being asked. So this is science isn't progressing, but they need the funding. So there's this charade or this a shroud that is covering, that is keeping things mysterious where you can't really tell what's happening because we should be able to just see results. But all this peer-reviewed things, this testing, these findings, these results, well, we get into that. One of the people I know at Stanford is uh, this guy, Bob Laughlin. He got a Nobel Prize in physics in the late uh, 1990s. And Professor Laughlin believed that once he had a Nobel Prize in physics, he would have um, complete academic freedom. He could do whatever he wanted. So he was ex an extremely delusional person, uh, as you can tell. Um, and, um, and then, you know, the area he decided to go after was not something like, you know, climate change or evolution or, you know, topics like this that are pretty dangerous. He went after something far more dangerous than, uh, than those topics. Uh, he was convinced there were all sorts of other scientists, um, um, and he started with the biology department at Stanford that were basically stealing money from the government and engaged in semi-fraudulent research. And you can sort of imagine how this movie ended. And you know, he, uh, <laughs> Professor Laughlin promptly got defunded. And, um, and so the questions about the integrity of the process are ones that uh, nobody can ask. He wins this prestigious award and thinks that he can go do good work and expose fraudulent findings. And what has happened to him? He gets defunded, he gets kicked out, and he loses his work. He's losing his life work. And these are the people that are supposed to give us our foundation for morality, our foundation of truth, science, studies. And when you talk with people from a religious perspective, that or you talk to them about religious things, I should say, and they have an atheistic perspective, they have a humanist religion, where they worship science, they're always referencing science. But you can't even call out people with fake findings in the science field? That's this these people's foundations? And this is the part where I want you guys to have boldness as Christians. Like, this is their infallible text. These are their religious writings, these scientific studies, these peer-reviewed articles, these scientists that are supposed to be above it and unquestionable. But when people start to try to root out corruption, 
do people join in because they're such moral people that are so honest? No, they kick them out because they're all hiding it. And it's a house of cards in a lot of respects. And if one one study gets disproven, then what about the other one? Next one. And what about the other ones? And then every study gets scrutinized and then everyone is all of a sudden starting to ask for validation. And then every study is getting required to be duplicated. And then all of a sudden people start asking, why are we funding these studies that can't be um, reproduced? Because that's science, guys. You should be able to reproduce your studies and your findings or it's not science. Because I should just say, because you're proving something and it has a cause and effect. And if you can't reproduce it, then you don't really know what the cause is because you should be able to put together the cause to get the, the results. That's why it's a big deal to be able to reproduce your studies. We have, a, we have a replicability crisis in science. People are starting to talk about that. But you, the politically correct way to talk about it is always in broad statistical terms. That, uh, What's, what do you mean replicability crisis? Um, well, there are all these um, experiments that can never be replicated. And so um, I think psychology, something like 80% of the psychology results can't be replicated. Is psychology a science? Well, <laughs> it, it, it claims to be doing experiments that, in theory, you should be able to replicate. Um, and, um, and then the replicability crisis suggests that, uh, yeah, there's something between lying and fraud and self-delusion. Or, and there's some, something very weird going on in, in a lot of these fields. Did you get that? 80% of... Psycho, psycholo, psychological studies, psychology studies can't be replicated? 80%. Now, think about all of the discussions that you have with people um, in, about psychology. And when they reference studies, when you think about child abuse and sex changes for kids and all of the references to psychology and gender fluidity and all this stuff, 80% can't be replicated. And isn't it funny that there's almost like this superiority to psychology over Christianity and the Christian worldview, you don't need to put up with it. 80% of their studies can't be replicated, which means they're hocus pocus. They're more fictitious than they think the Bible is. They are more made up. They are more unscientific. They're more non-scientific or however you want to say it. Earlier today, I got my Discovery Institute uh, uh, newsletter in the mail and they were talking about James Tour. Uh, he is a nanoscientist in uh, Houston at Rice University. He really seems to be doing some truly groundbreaking things, the kinds of things that you're saying uh, aren't happening very much. I, I find it uh, ironic or at least funny that he is very outspoken about his Christian faith. I mean, clearly one of the greatest scientists of our time is very outspoken about his Christian faith. But you can't argue with these kind of results. I don't think there's a nanoscientist in the world uh, who really could touch him. You know, he's, he's the best. So there, there are things happening. And I guess I wonder, I wish he were here, he could answer the question. But um, I wonder if there are places where the culture is different than, than what you're describing it. Guys. This is why it's important to be successful as Christians. Not only do we have stories like yesterday's show about buying out shares of Twitter where you can replace the board. But do you hear this? Even in science, when you are as good at your profession as this nanoscientist is, that he can be outspoken Christian in the science field? Are you kidding me? The like number one place that you're going to be laughed out of your profession about 
No one can even deny his work because of how good it is. And he can be professing Christian. No one can even question what his work is, be even though it's in the science field. The testimony that he has because of his excellence in pursuing that in his field of profession. This, guys, we have to be excellent. We have to pursue excellence. Not for the money, not for the worldly fame, but for the kingdom of God. We can't neglect it. We can't be lazy. We can't be the sluggards. I think there were a lot of things you could do that were not in outer space. There were a lot of things you could do on this planet here on Earth. There were a lot of things. Um, and, of course, this was not the only thing that went wrong. People were expecting to go uh, to Mars. But, you know, we, we landed, Apollo 11 landed on the moon in July of 1969. And four, uh, three weeks later, you had Woodstock. And I think, you know, in some ways, there was a cultural shift. And it was the shift from thinking about... Um, about sort of an exterior world that we were going to change and improve and, and explore to an interior world of psychedelic drugs and yoga and meditation and video games in a basement. And, um, and I think this shift from exteriority to interiority is, uh, is something that's characterized the, uh, the, last, uh, the last 50 years. And it's not just a shift from outward to inwardly. It was a shift away from Christian foundation. It was the Bible out of schools. It was the hippie, you know, doing the drugs and just sex and rock and roll and all of these things. It was a shift in culture, a rejection of God. Now, I'm not saying it started then, but it was the manifestation of what was happening for a while where people were saying, we don't want to serve God anymore. We want to serve our own gods. And it was the the like it was in my opinion the last like sh like kick of the can or like all right we're done with it we're done even faking it we're done pretending that we are a Christian nation we're going to embrace ourselves and think of the contrast I love this we went to the moon a few weeks later there was Woodstock the drugs the you know the sex and all that stuff and then the, the last clip of the Christian scientist who. The culture is there, the Christian culture, where we're still getting innovation opposed to the last 50 years. Remember, the last 50 years, we have not been seeing this vertical innovation except for the technology, the computer technology to distract us from the 100-year-old tunnels. It's because we have shifted and we've gone away from the vision of what the future should look like, that God has created this world and that it should to be seek to glorify him and we should become more like him and we should be creating things to glorify him. And it's become self-focused and it's become a culture where it's about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And it's been about myself. It's about yoga and my psychedelic trips. And the only people left that are producing life or bringing things to be are the Christians. What a beautiful gospel message. And what a reminder, we don't need to fear the studies of psychology. We don't need to fear the false religion of science. We just got to be faithful, guys. Since I was a kid, nothing has gotten better in the sense that there are no new bridges or tunnels. They were all built uh, before I was born or around the time I was born. I mean, the idea of building another bridge across the Hudson or another tunnel, and I thought, what a wild idea that, that they were doing this, they were doing plenty of this 
uh, in the earlier parts of the century, yeah, the, 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 and then it just stopped completely. The, the number I've seen is that in Manhattan um, or New York City, um, in inflation-adjusted dollars, it costs about 50 times as much to build a mile of subway <laughs> in real dollars as it did 100 years ago. It cost $50 to a mile more in real dollars, inflation, inflation-adjusted. That means the same money that was spent in back then to now costs 50 times more. This is the curse of rejecting God, the worship of nature, the environmentalism, the idea that everyone should be paid the same, equality, all of these things. New York City, 50 times more to build a subway mile than it was back in the day. Gosh, this is all part. See, it's all related. It all impacts our view of God, our cultural value system, business, economics, our culture, our society, our wealth as a, a society. It's all related, guys. It's all related. Okay, this last one, last clip, and then we'll go. I know this is long, but this is so good. You did an interview with the um, New Yorker magazine in 2011, and you said uh, that you believe, oh, here it is. You said, I believe Christianity to be true. Uh, I don't feel a compelling need to convince other people of that. Um, I think that's somehow, at least somehow, self-contradictory. Uh, because I think it's at the heart of believing that Christianity is true that you would feel that compulsion to convince other people of that. So uh, w what did you mean by that, or do, do, you, do you mean the same thing by that? Do you feel the same way as you did then, or can you expand on that idea? Well, may maybe, that was, um, maybe that was not as artfully worded as I would have would have worded that today. I, Were you afraid the New Yorker would call you out on your Christianity? I, no, I think I think that uh, I think that in certain contexts, like in New York City, uh, perhaps just saying that you're Christian is um, is, is is enough courage for people to have. I'm a Christian, but I don't feel like I need to get other people to convert. And Eric calls him out on it as he should. And his answer is, well, in places like New York, it's just enough. It takes, it, you know, having enough courage to just say you're Christian is enough. No, it's not. And if you're in a place, even as a billionaire, where you can't be faithful to God and live a life where you're not ashamed of the gospel, then get out of the city, man. Go outside the gates where our Lord was crucified and be among people that are rejected by the people that you fear, but with God's people. Just look, think of this pressure. A billionaire who recognizes what's going on in universities, what recognizing what's going on in science and our culture, this rot. He still can't even to this day, to this interview say he is going to obey the Great Commission. Man, this world has a lot of power. And I'm not even saying that to bag on Peter. We should pray for him. Ironic, Peter, the apostle, was the one who denied Jesus three times. And it seems in some effect he's denying what he should be doing as a Christian, his call. 
but we should be praying for him, but we should be praying for ourselves too, because this pressure is on all of us. We are all asked to deny Jesus in some way or another, and there's pressures and reasons why we could justify it. There's reasons that we can, you know, kind of say it in a way where it's not going to be as offensive. We could be really nice about it. We could just try to say it in a way where the culture is going to accept us. Our peers are going to accept us. We're going to be able to continue to do business, but we can't do that, guys. We have to be faithful to God. Fear God. Do not fear man. Let's go out and be successful. Let's be bold, be brave. Let's love others with God's love, not that Disneyland love. Be successful, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. God bless.